Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 15th September with me, Ian Welsh. We have a bumper episode for you this week. Recently, I had a fascinating conversation with CEO of Altruistic, Saif Hamid. We talked about some of the challenges around measuring and tracking emissions data in company operations and supply chains, materiality, how stakeholder expectations are changing and what the future for data tracking might look like. Plus, we have the first in a new series of Farmer Voice interviews, Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson spoke a few days ago with Deborah Ozai-Mensah, a farmer with the Usanafu Cocoa Cooperative in Ghana. That's all to come. First, though, is a regular roundup of some sustainable business news. There are more changes at the Science-Based Targets Initiative. As we've reported over the past few weeks, the organisation has been announcing a series of policy updates and improvements in response to criticisms around transparency and rigour of approach. Now the initiative has announced that it will be splitting its target validation and target setting functions, as well as formally incorporating as a company in the UK, with plans to set up as a charity in the near future. In addition, a new chair and independent trustees have been appointed to help oversee the process. The creation of separate entities for standard setting and validation is, the SBTI says, in line with recognised best practice for assurance bodies. The two entities will, at least initially, remain closely linked. And there will be strengthening in the standard setting procedures, again in line with recognised best practice, according to SBTI. A driver behind the process of change is the need for the organisation to scale up. There was an increase of 87% in the number of companies setting targets with SBTI in 2022. In total, there are more than 3,300 companies working with the organisation, with an estimated 10,000 potentially on board by the end of 2025. Now, we've all heard about carbon neutrality and the debate about use of carbon credits to enable companies and organisations to reach a net zero carbon position. What's new is that some are now taking a similar approach to plastic. As reported on non-profit news website Grist and elsewhere, there is a growing number of companies that are describing themselves as plastic neutral by purchasing so-called plastic credits, units that are traded and that represent a tonne of plastic waste that's been removed from the environment. The credits are designed to complement a company's internal plastic reduction strategies at the same time as providing funding for waste collection in developing economies, where provision of such services is often patchy at best. So, how does it work? In essence, a company can buy these credits so that there is a balance between the mass of plastic in products it sells and the mass of the plastic offset that it funds. Unsurprisingly, environmental groups are sceptical, not least because focus is shifted from reducing plastic use to managing its use. And given there is no incentive to actually cut plastic use, many accuse the process of being greenwashing. However, there is no doubt that dealing with waste in the developing world is a significant problem, and there is certainly potential for proper additionality. In other words, the plastic collected via the projects funded by the credits would otherwise almost certainly remain in the environment. The International Energy Agency has predicted that peak demand for fossil fuels will be later this decade, with the overall increase in global energy demand being met by a surge in development of renewable energy solutions. However, the pace of change is insufficient to meet the Paris Accord's 1.5 Celsius pathway, the IEA says. This is the first time that a future drop in demand for oil, coal and gas power has been predicted. The agency also says that the predictions are based on current policy and proposals and don't take into account any increased climate commitments over the next few years. The growth in heat pumps, the switch to renewable power and the forced accelerated transition away from Russian natural gas because of the invasion of Ukraine are among the factors driving the overall move away from fossil fuels. Extreme weather events may interrupt the overall trend given that heat waves push up short-term demand for electricity and periods of drought impact hydropower. A couple of weeks ago I caught up with Sif Hamid, CEO of Altruistic. 
We talked about what good data measurement looks like and how companies can keep up with changing regulatory requirements and stakeholder expectations. Why don't we start by uh, having a quick couple of sentence introduction into the work of Altruistic. Altruistic is a software technology company. We help other businesses to build, buy and sell better products. And we do this through three offerings that our product delivers. One is greenhouse gas inventory management, which is related to carbon emissions measurement, target setting, abatement or intervention planning, and so on. The second part is related to product breakdowns at scale and product R&D to help them design and formulate better products. And the third part is supply chain engagement, which is usually around data sharing and collaboration. And for anyone who's been in this space, we appreciate that most data that's relevant is supply chain data. And therefore, that's a key part of enabling the first two. Obviously, this all involves an awful lot of measuring and tracking emissions data. And this can be really daunting. What are the key things that a company should consider as it starts out on that? And I hate to say the word, but it's a journey, isn't it, for businesses in this respect? I think the first thing is for companies to be clear on what the business benefits are that they're going for. You know, I kind of think of three categories or types of companies. One I see as sustainability champions or sustainability leaders. I then see sustainability followers. And then a third is maybe sustainability adopters. The way I think of each of those three is that the sustainability challengers or leaders are usually the ones who are not doing this for the reporting. They're doing this because they actually want to design a more sustainable product to cater to a market and a consumer or a customer that is interested in that product. And whether you look at that as you know even a niche segment of the market, it might be 5% or 10% or 20%, it might be still a more loyal, a higher margin, or it's a more appealing market segment. And those businesses are looking to capture a, a dominant share in that market segment. And so if that's what you're going for, then you start thinking about not just, let's say, emissions measurement for reporting and can I complete whatever, you know, the PDF thing is that I need to submit to someone or whether it's a CDP submission or something else. But you start to think, okay, well, reporting is one output and it's probably the least important output and maybe even a byproduct. And the actual thing I need to focus on is product redesign, supply chain engagement, initiatives and interventions across my partners in my network and so on. If I look at the second category, which is more sustainability followers or fast followers, these are the businesses that are seeing what the first category do and watching how that plays out. And then they want to be able to mobilize fast. So a good example is you take, let's say, Ben and Jerry's right in the first category, one of the earliest B Corps, one of the first movers in that space, really trying to capture on that market. And then you see Unilever, which is obviously, you know, the, the dominant shareholder moving fast to now try and build momentum. And we see this happening quite often where for every Tony's Chocolate Only, there is a big chocolate company also now watching to see what they do and to move in quickly. The third space I see as the, you know, the sustainability adopters, which is probably the largest individual category of company, like they're the most companies that are going to be in that space. And those businesses are not really thinking about sustainability change yet. They're thinking about what is it that we need to do to meet the bar because the bar has suddenly been raised. And in many cases, then that's going to be about reporting and compliance, and it's going to be about pushing it as far down the road as you can, and then complying, basically. And I think to each their own, there's reasons for every company to be in any one of those camps. But 
from the perspective of businesses like ours, there are competitors of altruistic that will be a great fit for, let's say, the adopter category, where they're a cheap and easy and quick solution to get reporting done and dusted. We really focus more on the first two categories, where the breadth of our functionality and the granularity that we go to is what is really trying to enable change and enable a business to actually become a better business. And I think that is mirrored in the journey that most companies are on. Let's think a bit about companies moving from your category three to your category two, perhaps. Clearly for them, they're going to have to be thinking about data measuring requirements and how they are changing and the regulations they need to be looking out for as they get through and move towards category two into category one. What are the measuring requirements that are changing and what are the regulations that these companies need to be looking for now that enables them to move up a category? There are a number of shifts. Maybe the best way to look at it is I think that the first shift that every business is going through is just the digitization shift. And that's driven by all of the base case reporting. So whether you look at, you know, for example, the EU Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, there are multiple different regulations coming in at the level of individual countries. So for example, in the UK, as of a couple of years ago, everyone's submitting a tender into public procurement, public sector procurement also has to provide emissions numbers and a roadmap and targets and so on and make them publicly available. So there are a number of these drivers that have shifted the cadence of emissions measurement and data sharing and data gathering from what used to be, let's say, something you could do once every two or even three years or not at all to something that you kind of have to do every year. And that was the first shift that we were seeing. The second big shift was probably around moving from scope one and two to also scope three. And that's a shift that we see most regions now catching up on where a year and a half, two years ago, any conversation that you might have had with a mid to large size business in Europe or the UK you would have found that, let's say, four out of five conversations included scope three and were a scope one, two, three holistic dialogue. Whereas at the same time, if you were speaking with a US business, you might have been talking about scope one and two only, if at all, anything. And I think we're seeing that shift quite a lot to where now the default is that a company is looking at scope one, two, and three. And so that first shift was just digitization. The second shift is expansion, right, of the scope, literally. And then I think that there are two other shifts that we're seeing now happen in parallel, where if you see the first one about the nature of the data, which is, is it in PDFs or in people's heads or in some non-repeatable format? Is it digital? And is it something I can work with again and again? If that was the first one. And the second was around just how much am I measuring or covering? The third and fourth, I think, are more around granularity and usability, and then the nature of the data itself. And so in terms of granularity and usability, as companies have started to set targets and define roadmaps, driven very much by the trends of those first couple of phases, they're also now starting to have to think about what they do to achieve those targets. That means that you need to now make sure that this data is usable because you had an emissions number, but you now need to know what is the emissions of a specific facility, a specific ingredient or material in my product, a specific business process or activity, so that you can start to move the needle or change that. And so that granularity and usability from this perspective of a business means that you're now needing to deal not just with aggregate data, but with granular data. And just to give a real example, let's say energy information. Most businesses of a certain size know how much they're how much energy they're consuming in a given year. A far smaller share of them 
know how that energy use is distributed at the level of a facility or a process, even fewer will know what is the tariff or the energy in, or the uh, emissions intensity of that energy on the same basis. So you might have, let's say, if, you know, a hundred different energy suppliers across a global estate, and maybe five of them are already renewable energy suppliers, and maybe a bunch others are using grid power for certain breakdown. Being able to understand that granularity has become important and is a big shift. And then finally, the other one worth talking about, which is relevant for agriculture-centric businesses, which includes anyone along that value chain, anyone in food, apparel, a lot of personal care and cosmetics, pulp and paper, publishing, all these sorts of spaces, is the production of flag standards, which has come out from an SBTI perspective, but also greenhouse gas protocol perspective, the, the guidance is, is due. In that context, what you need to now understand is activity level data or weight level data from your supply chain as well. And so just to make that a bit real, for a good scope three calculation, it used to be good enough that you would gather spend-based data. So you would know you're spending $100 on potatoes and you know maybe if you're best in class, you know that out of that $100, you're spending $20 in the Netherlands and $30 in Ireland and $50 across you know, maybe three other countries. And you're able to then at that level, assign an emissions factor that is local or specific to that region on a spend basis. And that used to be not just good enough, but that used to probably be market-leading, frankly, as recently as last year, right? That would have been considered a pretty market-leading approach for most businesses. Whereas with the introduction of FLAG, you need to understand land management practice and land use change, for example, as well as removals and anything in that context. Let's say you're a food processor, let's say you're making snack bars, you need to be able to understand what is happening on the farm supplying me with my almonds, for instance. And maybe that's going through a third party, there's a trader in between, and I'm buying almonds from this trader, and the trader is aggregating almonds from a bunch of different almond farms or suppliers. But you need to be able to understand on that farm, what is the land management practice being deployed? Are they using some you know, form of cover cropping? Are they using a particular type of you know, input or material? Uh, how are they dealing with the waste? And then you need to also understand land use change. Has this replaced a you know, forest? What was the use of the land before it was used for this purpose? Which means that you already need to start getting into not just weight-based data, because you need to be able to understand the output of that farm relative to the emissions, but also practice or activity-based data, which means that you suddenly need to be able to layer on qualitative data at large global scale, potentially, on top of the quantitative data that you're more familiar with. You talk about all these issues and all these different forms of guidance and you know, the flag, for example. Can you give us some examples of how individual stakeholders are changing what they require? You know, I'm thinking of investors, suppliers, buyers, individual shareholders, perhaps even. How is what they are requiring changing so that requires companies to be taking and moving towards thinking about flag, science-based targets and everything else? We notice a difference in approach between operating companies and investors. And this seems obvious. But I think there is a, either a significant lag or just a significant difference in requirements. As an operating business, you already now need to start gathering more comprehensive data within your business. But that not only includes the quantitative data, but also the metadata or the assumptions. 
So if you go back to that energy example, because it's it's a simple one, but let's go to logistics, which is similar. If you are, let's say, using a hundred different vehicle types in your business, you need to understand not just, for example, how many vehicles there are, but what type of fuel are they using? What type of frequency is the route on? Which sort of locations are they going between? And usually that means that there's a lot of quantitative data here, but you also need to have assumptions and context that sit within the heads of individual people in your business. And you need to have a good way to join that up with the quantitative data so that you don't need to go back to those people again and again. So this is a fairly significant shift from a user perspective or an internal perspective in terms of how you manage that data. If you think of that mostly as relevant to the scope one and two aspect or what is within the natural domain of that business, there is another aspect now which is within the scope three context If you go back to the example we were sharing on almonds, as the processor of the almonds, as let's say the snack bar company, you need to be able to now engage your supply chain somehow in providing you with this data. And there are, let's say, a couple of few different approaches you could use. One is you could say, I'm never going to be able to go out into the supply chain for certain suppliers. If you have 10,000 suppliers, there may well be 5,000 of those that you're never going to be able to get any reasonable coverage from either because they're too small, they're too unsophisticated. In some cases, they're too big. And actually, you know, it's an interesting dichotomy here where sometimes the supplier is just too big for you to be able to engage them effectively in getting data from them. We see this a lot with retailers. Even if you're a billion-dollar revenue retailer, many of your suppliers are going to be 30 times your size. Because of that difficulty in gathering that data, you're going to have to lean forward in modeling out what the likely data looks like, basically. For us, as altruistic, we model out crop data for our customers, where we've built the ability and capability to model out for individual crops across almost every country in the world. We have good assumptions and good coverage that we've generated. And you would either work with someone like us, or you'd do that internally to try and close those gaps. This, the next angle you'd go with is you try and actually engage your intermediaries to try and provide you with that data. You know, some companies are using surveys, you know, companies like Arla, for example, send out large questionnaires to all of the farms that supply them to gather farm level data, which they can use. Others will use third party products to try and gather farm level data or supply chain data of some shape and size. Even if you're not buying from farms, you'll need to try and ask or query somehow your suppliers to provide you with activity level data. Whether you're using a survey or something else, most companies are using something more analog, but you need to be able to get that data somehow in place for you to be able to meet evolving requirements. I think that's going to be a massive problem, frankly. Like I know a business like ours obviously sees it as an opportunity, but very candidly, as a sustainability practitioner, someone in this space, this is going to be a big challenge for everyone to come up with. And I think there's two schools of thought here. One is that the answer is inherently top-down, which is model out global coverage, and everyone should be able to pull from the same modeling and the same standards and methodologies for that global coverage. And the other approach is every business should somehow feed into a central data layer, and everyone should be able to pull from that, and that should be the answer. And I don't think either is going to work. I think it has to be a hybrid. When are the circumstances that going forward, do you think that this modeling approach, which you mentioned, when suppliers simply can't or won't supply data and you're modeling it out, when does that comply with what's required and when doesn't it comply? And in fact, is the route towards compliance the sort of hybrid approach that you just described? 
So it depends a little on what you're looking to comply with. And so for most regulatory standards, you don't need to go to the level of weights and activities for your supply chain data. If you just look at regulatory standards in place across the world today, if you look at the evolution of, for example, science-based targets, the direction of travel is to get activity and weight-based data, which means that you need to have some way of covering for this. The challenge is that we're going to have a big problem amongst others with emerging markets. If I give one example, before starting Altruistic, I also started a farming business. And my farming business supplies roses and jasmine into the cosmetics industry. And so if you think of most perfumes out there that use natural fragrance will have potentially rose as a base or jasmine as a base. These are very common bases. But if you think about where these materials are grown, we're talking about small farms in emerging markets where you're lucky if the farm manager is literate, let alone is able to provide anything into some data ecosystem. I think that here we're going to see some big challenges. Anything coming from the global south in agriculture is going to have a massive problem, a massive hurdle, not to mention all of the SMEs across the world. Like think of lots of transportation companies, right, where you don't even have to go at the farm level. Just think about a little guy with a van companies, right? It's going to be super difficult. And so I think that there's going to be this big focus on better modeling to try and bridge these gaps. Proprietary data from a company, in many cases, it's going to be an essential corporate asset. What's the best way to ensure that data security is ensured? This is another good question, and I think there are a few different ways to answer it. One is conceptual and the other is technical. I think that right now there's an idea for a lot of large businesses especially that they should maximize the size of the umbrella when it comes to confidential IP with respect to this data. That is that they want to basically try and monopolize their sustainability data and not share this with others. They want to ideally have their own approach to gathering data from suppliers. They want to then use that supplier data in their own context and having invested in the capabilities to gather that data, they also want to ensure that that data is not shared with others. And there's a logical reason for this. One is that who they buy from, how much they buy, what they pay for for that product, all of this is important data, confidential, secure, data, sensitive data for the business. And then that means that if you were to have access to that data, and if you then go to, let's say, you know, even a level further, and you say to be able to do a proper product breakdown that you would need to do for effective product labeling, the data involved could effectively allow you to recreate the product of the business. Think of like a Coke or a Pepsi, right? Or any business that is fiercely protective of its recipe and its formulation, you could basically just pull that out, which means that if you're a Coke or a Pepsi and you're sharing data with a retailer, you become very concerned about the retailer wanting to get better visibility on your supply chain and better visibility on the underlying activities and the underlying inputs into your data from a sustainability perspective. It will be quite a charged conversation, I think. Especially when we work with smaller companies, we're seeing smaller companies start to get very hesitant about sharing that sort of data in any shape or form because they're afraid it'll be used against them when it comes to procurement. They're afraid that like the procurement teams from their buyer's side will start to reverse engineer what this business is paying for its products, where this business is buying from, and use that as leverage in negotiations. This is going to pose a significant problem. And the way that we're advising businesses to think about this is that what you want to be able to share onwards is an emissions factor, 
that means let's say that you're again think of the almond provider right you're selling into the snack company you want to be able to provide an emissions factor for the almonds that you're selling and you want to be able to provide along with that a methodology and an approach that has gone into generating that factor so maybe you want to basically say you know here's the approach that we've used here are the subsidiary emissions factors or the the databases that we've leveraged here's the way in which this has been calculated and here's the finished number you're providing them with the data input that they need to do the calculation on their side as the snack company, which is the emissions factor, which they'll combine in with the emissions factors for wheat and cocoa and anything else that they're using. And you're also providing them with the confidence that this has been calculated in a verified way. And then maybe you're even getting assurance done from a third party to demonstrate that this is credible. And so the combination of those things insulates your underlying activity level data from the emissions factor that you're providing. That's kind of one approach that we think will make sense. There are some good frameworks out there to help with the data governance around this. The PACT framework, for example, which is being led by the WBCSD, that's a framework that we see as having a lot of good potential behind it. And a few of the large companies that we know are already leveraging that for their engagement with their supply chain on data. And it basically allows you to share product-centric data, product-centric sustainability data across the value chain. So companies are approaching their data, they're approaching the things they need to be thinking about and also thinking about what their stakeholders want from them. What are the characteristics then of the good data tools that can help them? Let me maybe answer it a slightly different way, which is that I think that companies need to be quite intentional about the technology stack that they're bringing together to solve this problem. There are a few different ways in which companies can approach this, and I've seen all of these ways being deployed. One is where the company hasn't really thought about this and just sort of starts bolting on different pieces of technology to cover gaps. There's a couple of companies I know that are using Google Suite. And that's about as basic as it gets, but you can do pretty cool stuff, frankly, right? Whether Excel-based tooling is the same, where you can build a really elaborate set of modeling within your Excel. You have all these macros running, you have all these formulas, it's totally geared around your business, and you're working in a way that is really custom to your context. It works just fine as long as you don't change things up too much. So if you add on a new business unit, suddenly the model breaks. You add on a new product line, suddenly the model breaks. So there's that to deal with. And then you start bolting on different pieces of functionality. So you need to now have good visuals on top of this. So you think about Tableau or you think about Power BI and that's your dashboarding. You need to have emissions factors feeding in. And initially you were using, let's say, you know, US government EPA factors, or you were using Bayes or DEFRA factors, which were publicly available. And now you need to actually expand that coverage. So you also get a, an emissions factor database subscription, whether it's an eco-invent or an exio-base or something. And then you're pulling from that and you're getting it to feed into your Excel tool. And so gradually you start bolting on more and more pieces. And that's just something that evolves. Obviously, there are pros to that approach. It can be quite cheap and cost-effective. It can be very custom, very tailored. At the same time, it's usually not very secure. It's usually not very flexible. It's usually not very scalable. There's all kinds of drawbacks. Another variation of the approach is where you try and bring in best-in-class providers to help you with individual components. So let's say you have a cool farm tool as a data gathering tool that you're using for the farm level and you're using their farm level data, which is really good. 
And then you say, okay, now I need to have my own modeling capability. And so I'm using a consultancy to come in and build the modeling for me of how this data is going to be processed and calculated. And then I'm going to bring in another provider to do the next stage in terms of just the consolidating the calculations across scopes one, two, and three and activity level. And you know, you think about a design of a, a stack that you want and you bring in a tool for each part. That I would say is the second model that I see working. And then the third is you try and find some solution that is either able to do almost all of this or can commit to building out the functionality to be able to do almost all of this. And so if you look at the new breed of, let's say, sustainability technology companies, obviously including altruistic, I think most of us right now are expecting and committing to being able to do, if not all of that technology stack, then a large part of it. And I think there's going to be a reckoning for all of us, if I'm being totally honest, I think there's going to be a reckoning for all of us, which is going to push us in either of two directions, either we increasingly say, look, we frankly can't be amazing at all of these pieces. And so let's be amazing at one or two or three of these pieces and let other people be amazing in other aspects. And you already see some offset focused technology players, which are the brokers or the intermediaries, already having shifted to a partnership strategy. They used to be aiming to do the emissions measurement and the data gathering and also sell you offsets. And now they're saying, look, we have too much complexity to deal with on finding the right offsets and bringing the right offsets and securitizing the offsets or whatever else we need to do. And therefore, let's let someone else do the rest of the chain and we'll do this part well and we'll partner with others. So that's kind of one direction that I think technology companies in this space will head into. The other is that they say, look, we can do the whole stack, but we can't do the whole stack for everyone. We can do the whole stack in, let's say, a food business and we can manage the data gathering, whether it's farm data, we can do the data modeling whether for crop data, we can do data gathering across the internal business, we can run all the calculations across all the methodologies that are needed, and then we can do the visualization and so on. But we can't do it for automotive, because then we have to also be able to do metals and mining and all that sort of stuff. So I think that the reckoning is either going to shift technology players into some part of the stack or shift them towards some sector focus. What other changes do you see coming down the line? I mean, things are moving so fast. The best practice around data gathering and monitoring. What's going to be next? What are the key things that will be best practice in the next few years? I actually think we're all at the boring stage of this market. If you go back a little in this conversation, what everyone is right now trying to figure out from the business perspective is how do I digitize this data and how do I get this data to be usable and granular and repeatable so that I can actually do something with it to drive change? And at this stage, they're kind of setting targets and they're maybe doing some pilots with suppliers and partners, and they're trying to get a handle on the problem. And I think that this phase is for most businesses, at least that we work with, I think it's going to last a couple more years. And then I think we're going to move into the next phase, which is great. We've actually digitized this data. We've got it into a format that we can use and query and mine this data for insight. And the insight is going to be around driving change. And so we're going to say, look, we have now, you know, across 10,000 suppliers for our business, we have now data that allows us to get a handle on activities happening at the level of the supplier, materials being provided, alternatives to those materials that are lower impact. And you can really start to do some interesting analysis, and you can then start to use that analysis to drive change at scale. 
if you think of the world that we're in today or last year for most large businesses, I often think of the food sector because that's where some of our largest customers are, then you're moving from a world where you're gathering data by email and surveys and it's in flat files and PDFs and you've just gotten it together to get a report out the door and you're moving to a world where you're going to have that in some form of a database that you can query and run analytics on and then you can start to figure out what are not just the 50 initiative archetypes, but what are the... 50,000 initiative variations that I can deploy across 10,000 suppliers. And that's going to be really interesting. How do I collaborate with those suppliers on financing? How do I find an opportunity if my carbon price in my business is, let's say, $50 per ton, which is a price more or less what many of the Fortune 500 are using? How do I find initiative opportunities at $15 per ton or $16.50 or $19.50? And how do I collaborate with my ecosystem to deliver those at scale? That's going to be a really exciting world. And I think it's going to be especially exciting, not just because of the emissions change that it enables, but even more so because that is an unparalleled shift in how companies deal with third parties. And so if you think about procurement processes, procurement processes have mostly been effectively like a one-way street by comparison, or just a one-stream conversation where you're looking to optimize price. Whereas the sustainability imperative means that businesses are now collaborating not just on price and not just on emissions, but effectively on business activities. For the first time, almost in history, we're going to be approaching a point where large businesses are going to be interested in changing the activities and the underlying processes across all of their suppliers in a defined period of time. And that scale of shift is unprecedented, almost unfathomable. And that, I think, is going to be the exciting space, not just for emissions, but across any impact category and, frankly, for business change as a whole. I think you're absolutely right. It's really going to be interesting to see how these changing opportunities will then drive the change and these collaborative opportunities will certainly be driving change as we go forward. But it's sure going to be interesting to see what happens. For now, though, Saif Hamed from Altruistic, thank you very much. My pleasure, Ian. Thank you so much. Now, the first in a new series of Farmer Voice interviews with my colleague B. Stevenson. In the first of these, B spoke with Deborah Osaimensa, a farmer with the Asanafo Koko Cooperative in Ghana. They talk about the impacts of extreme and unpredictable weather patterns and how climate change and adaptation can disproportionately impact women farmers. So, Deborah, it would be great if you could just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your cocoa farm. My name is Deborah Semensa, a farmer, cocoa farmer from Ghana, and then also work as the operations manager for Esunafo Cooperative. It's a factory certified small producer organization based in Ghana, and we do produce cocoa. I am working on a 2.5 acres cocoa farm within the Esunafo North Municipality. I have been a farmer, I always say since birth, because my parents are farmers. But professionally, I started to be my own farmer or be uh, working on my own farm around 2015. And it's been a great experience. Of course, I'm also a veteran certified farmer because I'm a member of Asunafo Cooperative. Over the time that you've been farming, how have you seen your crops and maybe your livelihood being impacted by more extreme weather patterns and obvious impacts of climate change? When you look at the agricultural sector, the farming sector, it really depends on the environment. 
Coco, for instance, thrive very well when there's a good weather condition, when there's moderate sunlight, there's moderate rainfall at a time. And so over the years, I remember when I was very young, following my parents to farm, I realized they have a proper plan because they know when it's going to rain. And it really helped them to plan the various activities on the farm. But recently, things have changed. There's excess of sunlight, there's excess of rainfall, and this is really affecting our crops. When there's excess of sunlight, this results in premature ripening of fruits. So instead of the fruits that the cocoa pot to mature before it ripes, at a very small age, because of the heat, it ripes. And once it happens that way, you cannot harvest it. You just have to throw it away. And then sometimes when the heat becomes too much, the soils dries up. And once the trees are not getting enough water, you realize your trees are also dying off. The leaves become yellow. And then eventually, if there's no rain, then the trees go off. And so when this happens, the farmer ends up losing a lot of uh, productivity. And then the other end, when there's excess rainfall, there's so much diseases because under the trees, it's very cool. There's this fungi disease, there's pests on our pores, on the trees, and they all end up reducing the quality of beans that a farmer we are supposed to get and then also reduce our productivity. Once a cocoa is about 30 years, the productivity naturally reduces. And so the farmer will have to replant. But if you want to replant, now because of the heat, the survivor also becomes risky. It's very difficult to get 100 or sometimes even 80% of your young plant surviving. We fear the sustainability of our cocoa. It's also at risk. And then when you are talking about, we're also looking at the food security. If we are not able to plant new ones, if the new ones are not surviving, then in the next 20 years, those we are harvesting now will not be able to produce much. And so there, it will be difficult to also get the food that people around the world also depend on us for. So these are some of the causes and impacts we are having from the climate recently. With all of these impacts, so, I mean, research has definitively shown that women are disproportionately impacted by climate change, especially in the agriculture sector as well. Have you seen women farmers being impacted more than men or differently to men at all? And what would this look like? As a woman farmer, I think I've experienced this. You know, agriculture itself is a hardworking field. It needs a lot of labour. And so when you compare the strength of a man and a woman, which is not the same, it becomes very difficult for a woman to undertake most of the activities on the farm. When we talk about weeding, sometimes you can weed, but not to the extent of a man. We talk about pruning. It's a bit difficult for women to do the pruning of themselves. And so I was calculating, realize the woman's activities, they have to depend on labor. Like I talked, it should be a labor work, then a strain of the farm. Some of the maintenance, a woman will have to depend on labor and that costs a lot. But at the end of the season, the price is the same. The price is the same for a man. The price is the same for a woman. And so if you are going to calculate the profit, you realize women will have less profit because they invest more. But if a man, they are able to do most of the management practices and depend less on labor. And so at the end of it, you realize they have more money as profit. And some of uh, the machineries, 
another input used on the farm is not women friendly. It's very difficult for a woman to carry a spraying machine or a pruning machine. And so you have to hire a man labor, but men can do this. And so these are some of the difficulties women face in the industry. So always we are seen at the losing side because the little you get as a price, you have to invest more. And then you have less to take care of the house and then of yourself as well. Are you able to adapt to less predictable seasons and weather patterns in any way? And what are the best ways that you've been able to do that? As a fair trade certified producer, one of the benefits we have is the numerous trainings and guidance we get from fair trade and then also other partners and stakeholders. As a farmer, consistently we receive training on adaptive measures where we are thought to plant more trees in our cocoa farm to serve as a shade where we are advised when to spray the farm. We are advised on the various management practices to prune the farm wall so that when there's excess rainfall, there's chances for air to circulate well and then the little sunlight you get to shine so that most of the diseases will not affect your plants. And so we have the trainings and that is really helping us to adapt in our own way. And then also with the premiums we receive, we are able to do a little investment into our farms. Some of the labor costs, because if 20 years back, you have to weed your farm like twice. Now you have to do more just to make sure you are ahead of any climate impact. And so with this premium received, we are able to invest. And then also we have other stakeholders coming in to also support us with adaptive practices that farmers can do to protect our crops and then have enough productivity to support us. And in terms of other stakeholders, I wondered whether you had a call to action for how other actors in the supply chain, so maybe the businesses who buy your crops, can help and support you. To other buyers, what we want is for them to commit and paying a fair price. Majority of us depends on cocoa as our major source of livelihood. And so any change in price really affects us, either negative or positive. And so I call on all actors and buyers to pay fair prices to farms. Adapting to climate, it's very costly to do all the management practices to make sure at the end of the season, you have something to feed on. It's very expensive. And so once a farmer gets a fair price, we have that money to invest before we even look for other projects to support us. And so we calling on them to be committed, pay that fair price to a farmer, let us have that money to invest, and then also have the money to do other businesses that will support us. And then also farming is becoming risky with this climate change. And so this risk should not be given just to the farmer to face it. It should be shared with all buyers. So we are asking buyers, share the risk with us, support us mitigate this climate, support us mitigate some of the problems and risk in our production line. So that at the end of it, we all share the benefits. Because if I'm able to produce quality beans, it will also help your factory produce quality products. And so we are calling on them. Let's share this risk. And then also the last thing I will talk about, there are innovations to support farmer adapt to climate. But these innovations are mostly expensive 
to what we feel because our ideas were not taken into consideration. And so they even come, sometimes it cannot be even implemented or it, you have to find it very difficult implementing it at the local level. And so we are calling on bias. When you want to come up with innovation for policymakers, government, please sit with us, have a meaningful engagement with us, know what is going on, know what will work within our areas so that when we come up with an activity, a machinery or any innovation, when we bring it down to our farmer level, we can work with it and we can earn a good resource. This is what we are calling them to do, to support us all have a very good production for our families and also for businesses and consumers as well. Thank you so much, Deborah. Some very clear calls to action. Thank you for sharing your experiences and your thoughts on the podcast. Thank you for having me. The Innovation Forum website is as ever the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews in the run-up to our autumn conferences. Over the coming weeks, my colleague Diana Kim will be releasing some blog posts highlighting some of our most popular content from the past year or so. And the next in our free webinar series, looking at how carbon projects help enhance local community human rights, is now open for registration. We'll be back with the Monday briefing next week and the podcast as usual on Thursday. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next time, goodbye.